You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news. Focusing on everything to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to get rid of bad habits, and how to make sense of reports in the media about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as better informing general public about mental health issues. And welcome again. This is pre-recorded for your listening pleasure to be aired first on August 3rd, 2016. Another month of the year rolls by and lots of us down here in the south in Georgia are looking at school starting this coming week if it hasn't already this week. You know, in lots of other parts of the country, that won't happen for almost another month. Uh, but that's how it is here in Georgia. I uh, hope that's not causing you too much stress. Hope that you aren't feeling too stressed in general. Because, you know, if someone is too devastated and incapacitated by stress, they can become extremely or severely anxious and or depressed and it might need to take an antidepressant medication. But, as is the case, antidepressants take a while before they start working. When you're taking them for either depression or for anxiety, because they are used for both, they're very versatile drugs, don't let the name antidepressant fool you, it can be used for both. It takes at least two weeks for the average person to notice any inkling of improvement at all. But full restoration to your old self may take many more weeks or even months. And there's a lot of ideas about why that is the case. Why do antidepressants take so long to work? In fact, I think we know quite a bit about it. But nonetheless, I came across this article entitled just that, Why Do Antidepressants Take So Long to Work? So I thought, well, I would, I would present that to you and give you my own critique about the messages in the article and fact-check it for you. So let's see what it says. An episode of major depression can be crippling, impairing the ability to sleep, work, or eat, in severe cases, the mood disorder can lead to suicide. But the drugs available to treat depression, which can affect one in six Americans in their lifetime, can take weeks or even months to start working. Researchers at the University of Illinois at Chicago have discovered one reason the drugs take so long to work. And their finding could help scientists develop faster-acting drugs in the future. This research was published in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. Researchers identified 
what they say is a previously unknown mechanism of action for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, which are the most commonly prescribed type of antidepressant. But I would like to emphasize those are not the only types of antidepressants. The lay press would have you think that all antidepressants are SSRIs. They are not. This notion has gotten so far out of hand that in many articles that I've read, Wellbutrin is misrepresented, mislabeled as an SSRI. It doesn't affect your serotonin pathways at all. So to label it an SSRI is rather a howling error. In any case, the SSRIs were long thought to work by preventing the reabsorption of serotonin back into nerve cells, which is true, that, that is part of what they do, but not all how they help with depression. Uh, but the drugs also accumulate in patches of the cell membrane called lipid rafts, according to the University of Chicago scientists. A lipid uh, is another term for fats. Your cell membranes, including your brain cell membranes, are made up of different types of long-chain fatty acids. Uh, so apparently there are th these places within the membrane where molecules like drugs can accumulate. That is a very interesting and novel finding. Uh, but the scientists are saying that this buildup of the drugs is associated with diminished levels of an important signal molecule in these rafts in the cell membrane. Now, in terms of trying to answer the puzzle that's been uh, intriguing scientists, and if not uh, vexing them, as to why SSRIs can take up to two months to start reducing symptoms, especially because we know that they bind their targets within minutes. What they mean by that is SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitor, the reuptake pump at the end of a brain cell is the target of the drug. That's what it's supposed to bind. You bind the reuptake pump, it can't recycle the serotonin around the end of the brain cell so the serotonin accumulates. But that happens instantly. So if it happens instantly, why do, does it take weeks or months to feel less depressed? Well, it just goes to show you that how the medicines work goes way, way beyond the action of that pump. But these scientists thought that maybe the drugs have an alternate binding site that's also important or maybe even more important in the action of the drug to reduce depressive symptoms. Now here's where I have to say the article seriously gets it wrong. It says serotonin is thought to be in short supply in people with depression. Wrong. This is one of the worst myths propagated in the lay media. Nothing could be further than the truth. And it is so unfortunate because so many people think this because it's been said so many times in the lay press. Depression is not a state of lowers, uh, lowered levels or deficits of serotonin. 
there are imbalances in the serotonin pathways, but depression is not a deficit of serotonin in those pathways, nor do the medications increase levels of serotonin in the pathways to relieve depression. The SSRIs bind to serotonin transporters, like we just said. These are structures embedded within the nerve cell membranes that allow serotonin to pass in and out of the nerve cells as they communicate with one another. SSRIs block the transporter from ferrying serotonin that has been released into the space between brain cells, which is called the synapse, back into the brain cells. This keeps more of serotonin available in the synapse, amplifying its effects and reducing symptoms of depression. Well, see, in that part of the article, it mostly gets it right. It's very odd that it would at first say something so wrong about serotonin being in short supply, and then it gives a very good description of this whole idea of blocking the reuptake pump and what that does. However, it skips some very important steps. Yes, it leaves more serotonin available in the synapse, but there's a lot of steps between that and how depression gets better. These researchers were trying to fill in those in-between steps. They long suspected that the delayed drug response involved certain signaling molecules in nerve cell membranes called G-proteins. <clears throat> Previous research by the same group showed that in people with depression, G-proteins tended to con congregate in these lipid rafts, which are areas of the cell membrane rich in cholesterol. That's right. Cholesterol, our enemy when it comes to cardiovascular health, it turns out it's a major component of brain cells and brain cell membranes. In any case, with the G proteins stuck in these lipid rafts, they're not getting access to a molecule called cyclic AMP, which they need in order to function. This is how the G proteins get their signals to the next brain cell in the pathway. And this dampened signaling that takes place could be why people with depression are numb to their environment. <clears throat> in the lab, the scientists bathed rat glial cells, which is a type of brain cell. Uh, it's not a nerve cell per se, a neuron, but they support uh, the health and functioning of brain cells. And uh, they bathe these cells with different SSRI medications located the G proteins within the cell membranes. And they found that they accumulated in the lipid rafts over time. And <clears throat> um, as the drugs accumulated in the lipid rafts, that lowered the levels of G proteins in the rafts. Now, this process showed a time lag which was consistent with the other actions of antidepressants. So what the scientists are saying, that this effect of accumulating in these lipid rafts in the cell membranes, moving the G proteins out toward the cell membrane where they're better able to function, is why it takes antidepressants so long to work. That takes a while. It's a physiological process, 
It just takes time. You can't rush it. Now, they're taking it a step further and saying perhaps this finding could lead to how the drugs could be improved. Determining the exact binding site could contribute to the design of newer antidepressants that speed up the migration of G-proteins out of the lipid rafts so that the antidepressant effects might be felt to start sooner. Exciting to think about it, but again, scientists in the past have looked at this issue, have gleaned some insights, had some thoughts about how it might be sped up, but that didn't lead to any changes or innovations. And for the time being and for the foreseeable future, we're stuck with medicines that do a pretty decent job treating the symptoms of depression that take a long time to work. We'll continue this discussion after we get back from our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We were talking before the break about some University of Chicago researchers who found some new information about why antidepressants take 
so much time to work. Actually, I can explain beyond what the article says that they have shed some more light on the phenomenon that we knew already was taking place. Uh, we know that when the SSRI blocks the reuptake pump, leaving more serotonin available in the synapse, again, that's the gap between brain cells, this excess flow of serotonin has an effect on the cell membrane of the next brain cell in the pathway. This sudden flood of serotonin in the synapse causes the receptors on the subsequent cell in the pathway to make changes. Uh, the way it adapts to the sudden flood of serotonin and says, hey, wait a minute, we got all this serotonin and uh, we can't process all of it. So it actually prunes down the number of receptors on its surface. And it's this process that takes about 10 days to two weeks, and that was always thought to be the reason for the delay between the action by the SSRI at the reuptake pump, which is immediate, and starting to feel better in terms of less depression. So these researchers have actually filled in more information in between the steps. Uh, we do know that the G proteins they talked about that have to move from the cell membrane rafts across the synapse to the next brain cell are very important in the process. You remember I was telling you before the break, the whole notion that somehow increasing or manipulating serotonin is key for relief from depression is completely flawed and a gross oversimplification goes way beyond that. What happens is these G proteins are called messengers or second messengers they're called, but the point is once they get to the next brain cell in the pathway, they're telling that brain cell to turn on the machinery in their cell nucleus to produce proteins that protect and nourish brain cells. And this is the process that helps to heal depression. So that is the mechanism how medicines work. Increasing the flow of serotonin is just the first step in a cascade of processes which leads to the production of other proteins that actually help the brain cells heal, and that's when people feel less depressed. Um, it, it, it is a physiological fact that it takes X amount of time for that to happen, and despite the fact that these researchers have really done some very elegant work to elucidate this process and learn more about it, uh, I don't know how they're going to be able to speed it up if they can figure that out. That would be really unbelievable. Um, in my opinion, at least one Nobel Prize in it if they can do it. Well, I'll keep you informed. Problem is, though, even if they do figure that out, uh, once they do, it would take years, if not decades, uh, until medicines that could accomplish that would be developed. Uh, unfortunately, if you think antidepressants take a long time to work, science moves much, much more slowly. Well, speaking of 
delays that can impact mental health. This next article that I want to tell you about is a study that finds an average six-year delay between the onset and diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And this long delay means missed opportunities for early intervention to reduce the severity of episodes of bipolar disorder. Now, when I saw this article, I thought to myself, wow, there have been previous studies that found that the lag between the time a patient first starts showing symptoms of bipolar disorder and when they actually get an accurate diagnosis of their illness and begin treatment is on average 10 years. Uh, and that's data that is old. That's data that goes back about 15 years or so. And um, so if they're saying it's only a six-year delay, then maybe things are getting better. Well, in any case, let's go through the article and see what they have to say about it. But regardless of whether it's 6, 10, 15 years, crucial opportunities to manage bipolar disorder early are being lost because individuals are waiting many years in this study, an average of almost six years, after the onset of the condition before diagnosis and treatment. This was the key finding of a joint Australian and Italian study, and it was published in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry. An analysis of over 9,400 patients from 27 studies, the largest analysis of its kind, found that many patients experienced distressing and disruptive symptoms for many years until receiving proper treatment for bipolar disorder which was previously called manic depressive illness. The delay is often longer for young people because moodiness is sometimes mistaken by parents and doctors as the normal ups and downs of teenage years rather than the emergence of bipolar disorder, which can be effectively treated with mood-stabilizing medication. And this delay, therefore, or this mislabeling of symptoms as, as merely typical teenage moodiness or angst is a lost opportunity because the severity and frequency of episodes can be reduced with medication and other interventions. While some patients, particularly those who initially manifest psychosis, probably do receive timely treatment, the diagnosis of the early phase of bipolar disorder can be difficult. If a patient's first episode is a florid, manic episode with psychotic symptoms, that's really hard to miss. So that's going to get properly diagnosed much more of the time. But the there, there are um, a lot of patients um, who are unable to distinguish the depressed phase of bipolar disorder from other types of depression. That is, their clinicians can't tell. Um, if someone's first episode is a depression, they've never had a manic episode, you don't know that, have, that they have this bipolar tendency. And you wouldn't know it until and unless they have a manic episode. 
Another reason the diagnosis of bipolar disorder can be missed is that it relies on taking a detailed life history and getting corroborative information from carers and family members. This is information that takes time and effort to gather, and typically primary care physicians aren't going to be doing that. Clinicians also need to look closely at a patient's history of mood symptoms, looking for distinct changes in mood and other risk factors, mood swings caused by external events, uh, family history of bipolar disorder, uh, things like mood swings triggered by overseas travel, which disrupts sleep rhythms because of the changing time zones. Um, sleep deprivation is a very simple way to trigger a manic episode in someone who's bipolar, for example. And also, triggering mood swings with antidepressants. In fact, because a lot of people's first mood episode of any kind is a depression, they're going to be treated with antidepressants, and that may be how clinicians discover that someone has bipolar disorder. Antidepressants are mood elevators. So if you give someone who is prone to highs and lows in terms of their mood, a mood elevator, what can happen is you can switch them from depression into mania, and you can cause them to cycle up and down between depression and mania rapidly. And the clinician has unknowingly provoked this with the antidepressant. If they didn't realize the patient had bipolar disorder, the patient had never had a manic episode, or they failed to take a careful history and ask the right questions to screen out for the possibility of bipolar disorder. And sadly, that happens all too often. So the researchers are calling for a consistent approach to recording the onset of symptoms of bipolar disorder and also studying further the question of early symptoms, predictors of bipolar disorder, and the reasons for the treatment delay. Well, we, we already know quite a bit about the tendency for bipolar disorder not to be diagnosed right. Uh, clinicians don't ask the right questions. It's very simple in primary care to screen for bipolar disorder, yet they don't do it. And whenever I speak to my primary care colleagues, I encourage them, tell them it's very easy. You just ask one question. Someone comes in for help with depression, you ask them one question to screen for bipolar disorder. Right now you're coming to see me because your mood is too low. Has your mood ever been too high? If they even vaguely think the answer is yes, then you ask follow-up more detailed questions about too much energy, racing thoughts, impulsive behavior, etc. Uh, so it's not hard to do, and it should be done routinely, rather than just, oh, you're depressed, here's an antidepressant. Because if you do that, you actually could be making a bipolar patient much, much worse off. And <clears throat> But there are other than clinician-based reasons for this lag in diagnosis. 
There are patient-based reasons. When patients are manic, they feel really good, they enjoy it, they don't think there's a problem, don't need help for it. So they tend to only show up and get help when they're depressed, when they're down, and they don't report the episodes of the highs, so the clinician won't know, and therefore they will treat them with antidepressants and not pay attention to the fact that there have been manias and they need other types of medications. We have to take another commercial break. We'll be right back with more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all the latest mental health-related news. Let's now turn our attention to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder medication, uh, or ADHD for short. Um, the diagnosis and treatment of ADHD has been and continues to be controversial, although it should not be. Uh, that the diagnosis of ADHD is a real illness and can be extremely disabling is backed up by decades and volumes upon volumes of science. Uh, and yet there are people who are disbelievers or deniers. Uh, they might as well 
claim that the Earth is flat. It's just it boggles the mind how uh, people can just deny and ignore uh, <clears throat> something that is backed up by so much science uh, over so many years. And part of the controversy about this diagnosis is that the medications that are used to treat it are stimulants. They are amphetamine-like drugs or drugs with amphetamine-like effects and you're giving medications like this to children and adolescents and young people. So a lot of people, understandably so, think, isn't that harmful? And won't this lead to long-term detrimental effects? And won't it turn them into drug addicts and put them at risk for substance abuse? Well, those certainly are legitimate concerns. I mean, no one would deny that the drugs uh, definitely are not to be trifled with and are very serious and potentially be, can be dangerous in the wrong hands. But there are some considerations that make using these medications in ADHD safe. If your brain is wired such that you have ADHD, you will not experience taking these drugs as a stimulant. They will not give you um, a euphoriant effect the way someone would experience it whose brain is not wired such that they have ADHD. Uh, instead, the ADHD patient who takes these medications feels calmer and slowed down, less impulsive, better focused. The other thing is that there is a great deal of research to back up the idea that untreated ADHD is something that leads to a greater risk of substance abuse in children and adolescents and later on into adulthood compared to people who do not have ADHD. And that children and adolescents whose ADHD is treated with stimulant medications have less risk for the known complications uh, that people with ADHD are prone to suffer from adolescence on into adulthood, like substance abuse, like legal problems, divorce, poor job history, more car accidents and traffic tickets. So uh, whereas there was this concern that giving these powerful uh, medications, which are addictive in the wrong type of patient, to ADHD patients, you're setting them up for adverse consequences. Well, uh, again, none of that has been borne out, and I'm about to present to you an article about some research that was done at Princeton University, continuing to show that the medications do not cause these long-term detrimental things that some people claim they do. And in fact, this study found that the medications reduce risky behavior in children and teens with ADHD. Uh, <clears throat> so this study found that these medications taken by millions of American children to treat ADHD offer long-term benefits, not risks. And this was based on an analysis of Medicaid claims 
For nearly 150,000 children diagnosed with ADHD in South Carolina between 2003 and 2013, we found that treatment with ADHD medication made children less likely to suffer consequences of risky behaviors, such as sexually transmitted diseases and substance abuse and injuries during their teen years. 11% of children in the United States, ages 4 through 17, have been diagnosed with ADHD, and almost 70% of them are treated with medications. Children who are diagnosed with ADHD, which is a chronic condition characterized by attention difficulty and or hyperactivity and impulsiveness, are known to be at higher risk for risky behaviors such as dangerous driving, drug use, and risky sexual behavior. ADHD is such a major issue, but no one seemed to be able to give a very definite answer to the long-term effect of the medication. And that was the impetus for doing this research. For their sample population, they were able to see everyone who had an ADHD diagnosis and track their health over time to identify any potential benefits of the medication or the lack thereof. Compared with children who were diagnosed with ADHD but did not receive medication, those who took medication were 3.6 percentage points less likely to contract a sexually transmitted disease, 7.3 percentage points less likely to have a substance abuse disorder, and 2.3 percentage points less likely to be injured. In absolute numbers, in a sample of about 14,000 teens diagnosed with ADHD, it translates into 512 fewer teens contracting a sexually transmitted disease, and 998 fewer having a substance abuse disorder. There would also be 6,122 fewer yearly injury cases for children and teens under 19 years old. The research is described in an article titled, Sex, Drugs, and ADHD the effects of ADHD pharmacological treatment on teens' risky behaviors. And it was published online uh, in July by the journal Labor Economics. The work was supported by a grant from the Social Security Administration to the National Bureau of Economic Research. Interesting, I guess they wanted to look at Medicaid expenditures, and that's why it was an economics journal and not uh, a scientific or psychiatric journal. I would think something like this would be more uh, apt to be in the uh, Journal of uh, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. But in any case, uh, while previous research has demonstrated the effectiveness of medications in treating the core symptoms of ADHD, little has been known about the effects of treatment on health, behavioral, and educational outcomes in the long run. Evidence so far 
points to positive effects on some outcomes, but not others. A 2014 paper by a Princeton economist and other researchers found that such treatment was actually associated with a decrease in academic performance, a deterioration in relationship with parents, and an increased likelihood of depression. Other work has shown some reduction in hospital visits and police interactions. The <clears throat> one expert quoted for a comment on the article said that many professionals and parents still doubt the existence of beneficial long-term effects of ADHD medication, and therefore it is extremely important to collect more hard evidence, as this research does, on the impact of ADHD medication. And this paper is a great example that non-experimental impact assessments are very informative about the consequences of ADHD medication. This current paper is the first of several research projects in which the lead author paints a clearer picture of how ADHD is diagnosed and treated, as well as the associated short and long-term effects of medication. One paper in the works combines data to provide an explanation for the rise in ADHD diagnoses and treatment and look at the effects of recently approved medications for ADHD. These papers together will give a clearer picture of the reasons behind the increase in the diagnosis of ADHD and the effects of medication. Given that disadvantaged children and teens enrolled in Medicaid, a public insurance program, are disproportionately diagnosed with ADHD, these are important policy questions to address. Why are there more children taking ADHD drugs today than a decade ago, and what benefits do they deliver, and at what cost? Those are important questions, but a lot of the reasons for the increase in diagnosis of ADHD is better awareness on the part of clinicians and parents alike, uh, schools and teachers being more likely to point out that a kid is either causing disruption in the classroom or struggling to learn in the classroom because of their ADHD, the fact that there are many more treatments available uh, to address the problem. But again, uh, it's probably more because of better diagnosis and not that all of a sudden there's a much greater incidence of kids with ADHD. Uh, however, more is being learned about potential environmental causes uh, increased incidence of ADHD has been associated with everything from secondhand smoke to uh, air pollution to advanced maternal age and what have you. And these uh, answers to these questions uh, are ever evolving. All right, we're going to take a commercial break. We'll have more mental health related news after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all the latest mental health-related news. Now, in the previous <clears throat> segment, we were talking about ADHD, and uh, I was saying how it is remarkable that there are people who just deny all the science behind it, don't think there is any such thing. Part of all the evidence and the science that I'm talking about are brain imaging studies, you can actually see physical differences on highly sophisticated brain imaging studies between the brains of those with versus without ADHD. And this next article is about the fact that there are brain changes that are found in children with different types of disorders. These changes seem to be uh, in common in kids with not just ADHD, but autism and OCD, or obsessive compulsive disorder. An MRI study shows shared brain biology uh, is linked to symptoms that occur across these different conditions. This, it's a team of Toronto scientists uh, at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, have found similarities in brain impairments in children with autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, and OCD. The study was published in July in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and it involved brain imaging in 200 children with autism 
ADHD, OCD, or no diagnosis at all. Now, they found the changes in the brains in white matter. White matter in the brain is made up of bundles of nerve fibers that connect cell bodies across the brain and enable communication between different brain regions. This is opposed to gray matter, which are the cell bodies, uh, <clears throat> cell bodies of brain cells, and then you have these long uh, connecting wires, as it, as it were, um, or as they say, bundles of fibers that are covered in a sheath, which you can think of as like insulation for the wires. It's called myelin. So, and uh, <clears throat> the myelin actually has a whitish appearance, uh, hence white matter. So it, by looking at these MRI studies, they found impairments in the white matter in the main tract connecting the right and left hemispheres of the brain. In children with these three distinct types of disorders, ADHD, autism, and OCD, compared to healthy children. This particular white matter tract is the largest one in the brain. It's called the corpus callosum. And this is the first white matter tract to develop um, you know, in, in a baby and a child. And the biggest one, it does help the right and left hemispheres of the brain communicate. The research team also found that children with autism and ADHD showed more severe impairments affecting more of the brain's white matter than those with OCD. This may reflect the fact that both autism and ADHD typically have an onset at a much younger age than OCD and at a time when a number of different white matter tracts are going through rapid development. Autism, ADHD, and OCD have common symptoms and are linked by some of the same genes. Yet historically, they have been studied as separate disorders. Together, these three neurodevelopmental disorders affect roughly 15% of children and young people. This study is part of a major effort examining various childhood brain-related disorders collectively to better understand their similarities and differences and to develop more effective and targeted therapies. Many of the behaviors that contribute to impairment in autism, ADHD, and OCD, such as attention problems or social difficulties, occur across these conditions and differ in severity from person to person. The researchers found that the brain's white matter structure was associated with a spectrum of behavioral symptoms present across these three diagnoses. Children with greater brain impairment also had higher impairments in functioning in daily life regardless of their diagnosis. 
This finding has implications for our understanding of the nature of brain-related disorders. By providing biological evidence that brain structure relates to a spectrum of behavioral symptoms that cut across different developmental conditions, it highlights the shared biology among such conditions, and it points to the potential that treatments targeting a spectrum of behaviors may be relevant for all three conditions. I would like to expand on that last point a little bit. The way we diagnose psychiatric conditions now is strictly by observation of behavior, asking questions of the patient and those around them, and going through lists of certain characteristics and behaviors and symptoms that cluster together when someone has a particular illness or syndrome. Research like this could potentially move us away from this, relatively speaking, non-physical, non-medical way of diagnosing things uh, so that instead of diagnosing things by going through lists in a book, as it were, we would do tests like other doctors do. Um, so you could do a, a brain scan and say, hmm, okay, well, the results of your MRI shows that you have this type of disorder and it's manifesting in these symptoms. Uh, this would be a much better way of diagnosing an illness and therefore being better able to target the appropriate treatment and hopefully this is the direction that psychiatry is heading in. Let's stick with child development for the moment and an article that plays up the important role that fathers play in child development. Uh, of course, with very, very good reason, the, roles, the role that mothers play in childhood development is a major emphasis, seeing as how they carry them for nine months and nurture them from birth. But uh, according to a new study from Michigan State University, fathers play a surprisingly large role in their children's development, from language and cognitive growth in toddlerhood to social skills in fifth grade. Now, even before we get into the results of the research, uh, you could well appreciate how this has implications uh, for the structure of families and what happens when uh, children are not raised by both parents. But the research provides some of the most conclusive evidence to date of father's importance to children's outcomes and reinforces the idea that early childhood programs such as Head Start should focus on the whole family, including mother and father alike. The findings were published online in two academic journals, Early Childhood Research Quarterly and Infant and Child Development. There's this whole idea that grew out of past research that dads really don't have direct effects on their kids, that they just kind of create the tone for the household, and that moms are the ones who affect their children's development. But here researchers show that fathers really do have a direct effect on kids, both in the short term and long term. 
using data from about 730 families that participated in a survey of early Head Start programs at 17 sites across the nation, researchers investigated the effects of parents' stress and mental health problems, such as depression, on their children. Parental stress and mental health issues affect how parents interact with their children and, subsequently, childhood development. The study found that fathers' parenting-related stress had a harmful effect on their children's cognitive and language development when the children were two to three years old, even when the mother's influences were taken into account. This impact varied by gender. Father's influence, for example, had a larger effect on boys' language than girls' language. Another key finding, father's and mother's mental health had a similarly significant effect on behavior problems among toddlers. Further, father's mental health had a long-term impact leading to differences in children's social skills, such as self-control and cooperation, when the children reached fifth grade. In fact, father's depression symptoms when children were toddlers were more influential on children's later social skills than were mother's symptoms. In sum, the findings contribute to the small but growing collection of research affirming the effects of father's characteristics and father-child relationship qualities on children's social development rather than just the father's residence in the home or presence in the child's life. Fathers, in addition to mothers, should be included in parenting research and family intervention programs and policies. A lot of family risk agencies are trying to get fathers more involved, but these are some of the things that could be missing. When the agency is talking with the dad, it's not just about providing for your child economically, but also to be there for your child to think about how stress or depression might be influencing your child, and in order to understand and help children in their development, there needs to be a comprehensive view of the whole family, including both mom and dad. And with that, we're going to have to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed this information that I enjoyed bringing to you and that you found it informative and interesting. And I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.